The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, focusing on a larger-than-life case, infamous real estate heir Robert Durst, and the murder of his longtime friend, Susan Berman. When detectives found Berman shot in the back of the head, execution style, they had little to go on, and the case eventually went cold. Fifteen years later, this case would finally see some answers with an apparent confession. Featuring interviews with former judge Susan Chris, reporter Charles Bagley, and a juror from Robert Durst's Texas murder trial, this is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, Jinxed. This is the Court TV Podcast. In the days leading up to Susan's death, she was having some financial problems. Police come to her house and they find that the front door is unlocked and her body is lying on the floor. There was a theory at the time that maybe because she wrote about mobsters, maybe this was a mob hit. He was giving her large amounts of money because Susan had an important secret. He said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. On Christmas Eve 2000, police were called to the Benedict Canyon home of Susan Berman. Inside, they found her dead, shot in the back of the head, execution style. Detectives had little to go on, and the case eventually went cold. But 15 years later, it was reopened when the killer made an apparent confession in a documentary about his life. It's a bizarre tale that includes a 1982 disappearance, a dismembered body, and a dark secret that eventually led to Susan Berman's death. Susan Berman is a fascinating person. She was a very successful writer. She wrote for national magazines. She wrote books that were published. Susan Berman was a larger-than-life personality who, who is very memorable in so many ways. She grew up the daughter of a mobster in Vegas. Her father was Davy the Jew Berman. That, that, that was his name, that was how he was known to the police. And he was a pal of Bugsy Siegel. Together they had run the Flamingo Hotel for the mob. When the mob got tired of Bugsy and killed him in Los Angeles, it was Davy Berman who walked into the lobby of the hotel and said, I'm in charge. In the days leading up to Susan's death, she was having some financial problems, and that wasn't uncommon. She made a lot of money, and then she spent a lot of money. So there were times when she had a, a wealth, and there were times when she was on the verge of, of losing her home. She was going through one of those times right before she died. Hi, Susan. My name is Sandra. Um, your little dog is taken to our house. Um, you'll be here. Um, just wanted to to do it. Bye-bye. The neighbors noticed that 
her dogs were running loose in, in the neighborhood. And this was a pretty dangerous street, uh, Benedict Canyon Drive. Cars come whipping down the canyon very fast, and, and there's just not a lot of room. So letting a dog run wild was almost a death sentence. And so one neighbor knocked on the door, left a note, and finally, another neighbor called the police. Yes, hi. Um, I live in Benedict Canyon, and um, my next-door neighbor, one of our other neighbors, um, found her dog on the street yesterday. And we went over next door to see if Susan was home, and her car's in the driveway. She's not answering her door. She's not answering her phone. Her back door is wide open. Her other dogs are in her yard, and they're barking their little heads off, so it's very weird. She lives by herself, and... I hate to think. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and get some officers out there to check it out. The police come to her house and they find that the front door is unlocked, back door is open, her wallet, her keys, all her belongings are open, uh, untouched, no forced entry, and her body is lying on the floor in a pool of blood. They found her face up dead with a shot to the back of the head, very close. The killer would have had to come up right behind her. Her dogs had tracked through the blood. Even though her body was found on Christmas Eve, it, it sort of got lost in, in the hubbub of the holidays. And so the LAPD, uh, didn't put out a press release until, I, I believe it was January 4th. And so the first story doesn't appear in New York until 11 days later, after her body was found. There were not a lot of leads. The police got a letter that was postmarked on the 23rd. She was found Christmas Eve. And it said, um, cadaver. And then it had the, her address. The note itself was addressed to the Beverly Hills Police, and that's it. The key thing is that Beverly was misspelled. There was an extra E. It was a peculiar letter because it said cadaver, which was a kind of odd word to use. The Beverly Hills Police turned the letter over to LAPD, to the detectives that were investigating this murder. There was a theory at the time that maybe because she wrote about mobsters, maybe this was a mob hit. That idea in the police's mind that her dad was a mob boss basically took them to the conclusion that there must be some of these geriatric mob bosses that rubbed her out because of something to do with her dad or the mafia. The mobsters in Las Vegas that would have been palling around with Susan's father would have been 100 years old. and unlikely uh, to be going around uh, wiping people out uh, or even caring. What, what did Susan know that could hurt them at this point? The initial suspect in, in this death was her manager, Niall Brenner. There was an initial uh, handwriting expert who identified him as a possible author of the infamous, what, what's become known as the cadaver note. Another suspect that came up was Dee Baskin, Susan's landlady. She owned the house. 
And they had been at odds. She had tried to evict Susan four times in, in the prior year. Susan told her friends that Dee had waved a gun around and threatened her at one point. Susan's murder went cold for a long time. Part of it was they didn't, they didn't think they could prove who did it. So LAPD was focused on these suspects. New York investigators finding out that Susan had been murdered were calling and telling them, look at Bob Durst. Find out where he is, where he was. For most of her life, Susan Berman was Robert Durst's best friend and ally. Susan told her friends that her, her friend Bob was coming to visit her for the holidays. But when the police interviewed her family and friends, everybody said that she absolutely loved Bobby Durst, that he couldn't be a suspect, that he would never hurt her in any way. And clearly, he wasn't even in the area at the time. They didn't have any evidence. So there was real, really no, no trail there and no investigation. Bobby loved Susie. Susie loved Bobby. It was like a mantra. So Bob Durst was the one person they weren't focused on. Can they be faulted for that? I'm not so sure. While the Los Angeles Police Department had no reason to suspect Robert Durst in the murder of Susan Berman, New York detectives were well aware of Durst as a person of interest in an unsolved missing person case. The person missing, his first wife, Kathy McCormack Durst, who vanished in 1982 under suspicious circumstances. And Berman had a connection to this case. Robert Durst is from a very prominent real estate family in New York City. Durst saw his mother die, whether it was suicide or whether it was falling off the roof. That event and the way his family handled it affected his behavior and everything in his life from that moment forward. What happened to Kathleen Durst, a 29-year-old medical student who once spent weekends with her wealthy husband, Robert, at this stone cottage in northern Westchester. State police are taking a fresh look at the case, investigating leads that cast suspicion on Kathleen's husband, the heir to one of New York's wealthiest real estate families. When Kathy went missing, he said he put her on a train from their cottage at the lake into Manhattan, and he never saw her again. He had inconsistent stories. That's when he had Susan Berman kind of become his publicist and speak on his behalf. And he seemed to have kind of skated through the aftermath of his wife's disappearance. So there was one other thing that sort of obscured what happened to Kathy in 1982. On Monday morning, the day after Kathy left South Salem, a woman called the med school and said, I'm Kathy Durst. I'm not feeling well, and I won't be in today. Much later, a suspicion arose among investigators, among Kathy's family and her friends, that the call was not made by Kathy, but the call, in fact, was made by Bob's close friend, Susan Berman. It was always presumed that she knew a lot more about Kathy's disappearance than anybody else, except for Durst. Who knows exactly what happened, but since there is no body, no official crime scene, the case kind of petered out. 
The disappearance of, of Kathy Durst was a cold case that had been reopened. So Bob had a concern based on things that were in the media that the DA, Janine Pirro, was going to focus on him as the killer. I believe that Bob came to Galveston for the same reason he went to LA. He came to Galveston, I think, to kill Morris Black and get rid of witnesses. Robert Durst rented a very, very modest room in the center part of the city. He was living a very, very simple life and was a bit of a hermit. And when he did go out, he went out dressed as a woman, uh, presumably to keep attention off of himself. Morris Black was a 71-year-old man at the time who lived in the same building, was a neighbor of Robert Durst. I don't know exactly what connection Morris Black had to the disappearance of Kathy, but I think he did have a connection. Morris Black was from the East Coast. He knew who Durst was. Now, whether he knew because Bob revealed it to him or whether he knew because he knew beforehand, there's a debate about that. Morris Black disappeared. Subsequently, his chopped up remains were found in a garbage bag that floated uh, back in from Galveston Bay, minus the head. His head was never recovered. Morris Black's head was never recovered. There were pieces of paper in the bag that contained Morris Black's body parts that tied back to both the fourplex where the two men lived and to Robert Durst. Ultimately, he was arrested and charged for the murder of Morris Black. He bonded out and he hit the road. So he was, he was on the run and truthfully, we didn't expect him to come back. So about 10 months after Susan Berman is murdered in Los Angeles, we got word that A. Robert Durst had just been arrested in Galveston. I mean, could this be our Bob Durst? And I realized it was our Bob Durst. The case had already grown in infamy because of Mr. Durst and his family ties and because of his history. And he was ultimately found in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania after he was arrested for stealing a hoagie and some bandages from a store and was brought back to Galveston. The murder trial of Robert Durst for killing Morris Black was surreal. Bob's basic story is that he found Morris Black in his apartment uninvited and that Morris became a threat to him. They had a struggle and Morris was shot, shot during that struggle. Don't cut somebody up into pieces. You bag him up, dump him in the bay when you act in self-defense. It just doesn't happen. The focus was not on chopping up the body. Robert Durst had already admitted to that. So he wasn't on trial for that. And he wasn't on trial for the disappearance of his first wife. And the defense team made that very clear that Robert Durst is on trial for how Morris Black died, and that was our focus. Will the defendant please rise? For the verdict of the jury as such, will the jury find the defendant, Robert Durst, not guilty? 
I have been asked probably a thousand times why I thought the state lost. The state didn't prepare. They thought the case was so horrendous that it was going to be a, what we call a laydown, which is you can't lose it. The biggest part of why I think they won, though, was the jury. They did a good job of knowing what kind of juror they needed. We as jurors stand behind our decision. We didn't feel that murder was actually proven because you couldn't say beyond a reasonable doubt that Morris Black was actually murdered by Robert Durst. So we had to find not guilty. Bob had been quiet for a year, but he was dying to talk. When they decided to do a documentary, he was game. He talked to them about everything in his life. It was like no holds barred. It was mouth-dropping. After being acquitted of the murder of Morris Black, Robert Durst did plead guilty to charges of bail jumping and evidence tampering. He would serve time in Texas, and by 2006, he was a free man. Bob had been quiet for years, but he was dying to talk. He had been reading an article in the New York papers about some folks that were doing a film called All Good Things. And it was a semi-fictional version of Bob's life. Due to new evidence and a close look at the case, I've decided to reopen the investigation into the disappearance of Captain Marks. The movie has him being portrayed as somebody who killed three people, or had three people killed. And he loves it, but he loves it because it made his family look bad. Bob calls the filmmakers, Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smurling, and he said, maybe we could do something. When they decided to do a documentary called The, the Jinx, he was game. He talked to them about everything in his life. It was like no holds barred. I had always planned on someday, the someday was always way out there, but someday giving interviews about what happened as opposed to what people think or believe or something like that happened. I was immediately attracted to the idea of having you do the interview. I felt strongly that the interview would not be a hatchet job, but you didn't do a hatchet job in the movie. So he begins talking, and he just keeps talking and keeps talking against his lawyer's advice. But he's loving the attention, he's loving telling his story, and he loves to talk. But this was her thing. She wants to go to the city, I'll take her to the train station. She wants to go to the city, she can call Kale, but she's not taking the car. That was an argument. Was that argument just a verbal argument? No, that was a pushing shoving argument. Durst admitted to a lot of things in the, in the jinx. He admitted to committing domestic violence against Kathy. He admitted to um, a lot of deceptive things. He admitted to lying to the police and Kathy's disappearance. Then he went to the mayor's. Yeah, so I told the police, I was hoping that would just make everything go away. I didn't go to the mayor, I took her to the train station, went home, went to sleep. And why, why would that have made everything go away? Well, I'm not the mayors. They wanted to hear, no, what did you do? So I told them I did that. Another crazy thing was he turned over boxes and boxes of papers to the producers. They, they found an 
an envelope that had a letter in it that Bob had written to Susan Berman in Los Angeles. And this envelope looked identical to the anonymous note that was sent to the Beverly Hills police. When they appeared on the screen, it was mouth dropping. So I want to show you the envelope that that letter came in. I was interviewing him after every episode of The Jinx. He was agitated. He's already seen that they've got these two letters, envelopes, that look to be the same handwriting, his handwriting. And he hustled me off the phone and said he'd call me back. I knew as I hung up the phone, I would not hear from him again. The big shocker in the jinx came at the very end. Bob's second interview with the producers ends. They get up from the table and Bob says, can I use the bathroom? And he walks into the bathroom with the mic still on. There it is. Like I said, he loves to talk. If he doesn't have anybody around, he's talking to himself. Ultimately, the producers of the Jinx brought what they knew to a very smart, cold case prosecutor in Los Angeles by the name of John Lewin. He was arrested trying to leave the country on the last night of the jinx. If it wasn't for Bob agreeing to work with them, agreeing to give them unfettered access to 60 cartons of his, his legal papers, uh, his credit card statements, and his phone records, he would be walking amongst us. Nearly 20 years after Susan Berman's murder, Robert Durst would finally face murder charges. And before the trial even started, he was already changing his story. There was one thing that happened just before the trial started. The defense stipulated that Bob was the author of the cadaver note and that Bob had been in Los Angeles at the time. This was immensely significant. He told the police a lot of stories. Most of them were not true. This was a different Bob Durst than Galveston, of course. When he got to this trial, he had a catheter, he'd had bladder cancer, he had all kinds of um, issues with his health. He was very frail. One of the things that is going to become very clear in this case, what the evidence is going to show, is that much of the most damaging evidence is going to come directly from Mr. Durst himself, out of his own mouth. The defendant himself made clear that Susan would go to almost any length to protect him. 
Bob Durst was not generous with any of his other friends. But for Susan, he was giving her large amounts of money. And the evidence will demonstrate that he was giving her these large amounts of money because Susan had an important secret. The Berman trial was like the Jinx trial. There was so much of the Jinx that came into that trial. It was constant, like verbatim. Watch this. Here's the transcript. Listen to this. All right, Susie Berman said the police have contacted the Los Angeles police have contacted me. They want to talk to me about the, her Kathy Durst disappearance. And this was probably before the PR guy told me that the newspapers is doing these articles. Because any documentary is edited, the prosecutor said from the start, I'm not going to show the jury the jinx. I'll show you the raw, unedited tapes of Bob's interviews. And so hours worth of material was called from those interviews and presented to the jury. And did you have any feeling about what she was doing in talking to the police? Did you feel like she was? She said, Bobby, it's going to be best for both of them. I just talked to him. Bob, I didn't say no. Was, was there anything that Susan knew about you, your history, Kathy, no Kathy, whatever it was, was there anything that Susan knew as you're sort of confident that you would have been uncomfortable with her telling the police? You know, we had lots of private things. We wanted to anything to do with Kathy. I mean, when Kathy was, you know, going bananas, we would talk about Kathy all the time. I couldn't imagine her talking to the police about that, uh, just sitting here right now. But the police want to talk to me. I'm just going to talk to them. All right, like that was a conversation. Whatever you want. Something happens to Susan then. Uh, yeah, murder. Having so many, basically over 20 hours of raw tape of Bob explaining himself did not help him during the trial. So they start the trial of Durst in March. The pandemic started on the 17th. So they shut down and they have a very long hiatus in the trial. Welcome back to Cartman One, People versus Robert Durst. Our jurors are all present. Mr. Durst is present with Mr. Chesnoff, Mr. DeGaran. Mr. Luna, are you ready? The prosecution put on an overwhelming case. There were 80 witnesses called by the prosecution. I mean, th this is a four-month-long trial. You don't have four-month trials in the United States anymore. So, so that was an exhausting experience for everyone. When I say the name Kathy Durst, you know who she is today, is that correct? I do, yes. Do you know how you found out that she had disappeared? Susan told me that she had provided an alibi for her, for him, for Bobby, uh, in relation to the disappearance. You know, it's vague, but I remember her saying that she made a phone call. We now heard testimony in Los Angeles from maybe a half dozen friends of Susan Berman, that she had confided in them that she had done something to help get the police off Bob's back. Next, people will be calling Nick Shaven. This is going to be a six hour and 16 minute video. Please be seated in the witness stand. 
can you please tell me what Susan Berman said to you about what she knew regarding Kathy Durst's disappearance? Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't. And she said, yes, he did. And we argued about that. She said, we love both of them. Kathy's gone. We love Bob. We need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. As the trial went on, I realized there were more people that have been keeping his secrets than I, than I thought. I knew there were some people. And these people had kept these secrets for decades, bring many investigations, many interviews, and all of a sudden, they're all talking. I don't think he thought they were gonna all start talking. And one by one, they did. At a certain point in time, sometime in late 2014, did you have a dinner with Robert Durst? Yes. I want you to describe what happened at the end of that dinner. This is hard. He walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan? And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. By the time Bob took the stand, they had watched him on tape. They had heard his prior explanations. I don't think he had any credibility with the jury. Jurors on the stand was almost like a you know train wreck. Like you, you, you can't look away, but you, but you're you know, but you just you can't really look at it. Do you feel like he's just going to go down, down? It's like, this is not good. I mean, my sense was, he's going down. He shouldn't have gotten up there. You mentioned that you started yeah, running. You, why don't you let John tell you what questions he wants me to answer? John was John Lewin, the prosecutor. It was as if he was saying, bring it on. I can take whatever you got. After almost four months of testimony in a case that had already spanned over a year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, came the moment everyone was waiting for, the testimony of suspected murderer, Robert Durst. A lot of people have asked why DeGuerin and his other lawyers would allow him to testify. I think they didn't have a choice. I think Bob insisted on testifying. I think he just thought he could talk his way out of it. He wanted to spin his tail. Bob? Did you kill Susan Berman? No. Do you know who did? No, I do not. Do you realize you have an absolute right not to testify? I am aware of that. Do you want to testify on your own behalf? Yes. He's got all kinds of problems. He's got bad hearing, and he's sitting in a wheelchair, but he is still sharp as ever sitting there. You mentioned that you 
started yeah, running away. You, why don't you let John tell you what questions he wants me to answer? I'd rather not. I'm available to talk. <clears throat> You'll have your chance. John was John Lewin, the prosecutor. It was as if he was saying, bring it on. I can take whatever you got. It seems like you've been waiting for this cross-examination for a, a long time. You said, for instance, during your direct examination, at times you would almost seem bored and then you would make comments about my questioning you. So I'm just kind of wondering, were you being just humorous or I was trying to understand that. That was my sense of humor. You know, Durst doesn't look like a scary killer. He can be charming, he can be witty, he can be funny, he can be kind of likable. You would agree there are other important details in this case where you have gone back and forth and given different answers to the same question. Would you agree? Yes. Would you lie under oath to help your case? Yes. Okay. Have you lied thus far during your testimony at this trial? No. But if you had lied, given your last answer, you might not admit it, correct? Correct. He could tell lies very well, very believable. The, his problem was he couldn't always remember what he had told to whom. And so in the end, he talked too much and he got tripped up in his own lies, his own machinations. On direct examination, do you remember the first thing that Mr. DeGuerin asked you? He asked me if I killed Susan Berman. Did you know that question was coming? Yes. And you denied it, is that right? I said no. If, in fact, you had killed her, would you tell us? No. John Lewin asked Durst, wouldn't you agree that Susan Berman was the worst person you could ever confess murder to? Would Susan be the last person that I would want to confess a murder to? I guess you would be the last person I would want to confess a murder to. <laughs> Which was kind of funny, but it was also, I mean, it didn't help his case, but he, he wants to show that he's witty and funny and smart. So would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if, if you assume that Susan had a secret that could get you into trouble, that you would be concerned that eventually that secret was going to come out, am I correct? Susan was not good at keeping secrets. I think the reason that Bob did things and said things that hurt his case and help the prosecution was arrogance. And you didn't see that dark side in our trial. You didn't see that dark uh, side in the jinx. But there were moments in that cross-examine where the mask slipped and you could see that dark side. Okay, Mr. Durst, you would agree that nobody is disputing that you gave Susan the money. Would you agree? I am in 
Yes, I would agree that no one is disputing that I gave Susan Berman money. Would you agree that the issue is not whether you gave her money, it's why you gave her money? Would you agree? No. I don't even think it's an issue. I gave her money because I felt like giving her money. Well, Mr. Durst, we know that you gave her $50,000 by your own admission the last month of her life, basically, correct? Correct. And by that time, Mr. Durst, you were well aware for years that she had been telling people you say falsely that you murdered your wife and that she helped you cover it up, correct? Correct. Why would you give somebody money who was out there saying that you had murdered your wife? I did what I did because I did what I did because I am who I am. I think that was the big moment of the trial. Those jurors, they knew this is a guy who's gotten away with killing people. Robert Durst spent 14 days on the stand, repeatedly denying any involvement in the murder of his friend, Susan Berman. Now, nearly six years after his apparent confession on HBO's The Jinx, John Lewin's prosecution team would attempt to hold Robert Durst accountable. This case is easy. This case can be summed up to you in nine simple words. It was her or me. I had no choice. Sadly, it was gonna have to be her. At the end of the day, when it was her or me, I had no choice. It was gonna have to be her. That's why we're here. This case is supposed to be about Susan Berman. But we heard months and months of evidence about a case in Galveston in which I represented Bob Durst, in which 12 good citizens found him not guilty. So what I want to talk to you about is the efforts they've gone to to demonize Bob Durst. Nine days of beating up on a sick old man that can't defend himself. Calculated to cause you to hate him. And you may hate Bob, but hatred of Bob or dislike of Bob or thinking that he's a liar doesn't substitute for evidence to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt, either direct or circumstantial, that he killed Susan Berman. We all thought we knew what the jury would do, but it was a question of how long was it going to take. And, it, and, you know, after Galveston, there could always be a surprise. In fact, I, I've always said to people uh, who ask me about this case that one thing is always certain, there'll be another surprise in the Bob Durst story. Superior Court of California, County of Los Angeles, the people of the state of California versus Robert Durst. We, the jury, in the above entitled action, find the defendant, Robert Durst, guilty of the crime of first-degree murder of Susan Berman. 
It was not only that Bob had killed Susan Berman, but that he had killed a witness. That meant that Susan had been a witness to what Bob had done to cover up the murder of Kathy Durst. And this is why he had killed Susan Berman in Los Angeles 18 years later. As to count one, the first degree murder of Susan Berman, with a special circumstance of intentional killing of a witness, it's the judgment and sentence of this court, Mr. Durst, that you be imprisoned in the state prison for the term prescribed by law, that is, life in prison, without the possibility of parole. The day after the sentence, he ended up on a ventilator with COVID, and then, then he was charged with killing his wife. Here we are now, 39 years later, and prosecutors have just now filed an indictment against Bob for the murder of Kathy. The indictment itself is very terse. It doesn't say what happened, how it happened, but it says that it was an intentional murder. I think he killed Kathy, I think he killed Susan, and I think he killed Morris Black. In my opinion, Robert Durst is not a serial killer like Ted Bundy. He's an opportunist. He's a cold-blooded, cold-hearted killer who kills anybody that gets in his way, period. I mean, it's clear that, that he was a nihilist. He was concerned principally with himself. And when he was cornered, he struck out. He's not insane. Insane, there's a legal definition of insane that knows right from wrong, and you wouldn't be hiding what's going on. I think he has mental health issues deriving from his family background and the loss of his mother, but he's not crazy. Bob has been transferred into the California prison system. He is not a well man. There's no question about that. Now that he's been indicted in Westchester, I think it's an open question whether there will be a trial. We're never done until he's dead and he's not ready to die. I thought, I was, a, I was concerned that he would not live long enough for the trial. Then I was concerned he wouldn't live long enough to, end, to get through the trial. Then I was worried he wouldn't live long enough to go through the cross-examination, but he's gonna outlive us all. I, I believe that as well. Every time we think we're done, we're not close to being done. On November 1st, 2021, Robert Durst was indicted by a New York grand jury for the murder of his first wife, Kathy McCormack Durst. As of this taping, no trial date has been set. Durst, who is 78 years old, is currently serving his life sentence without possibility of parole at the California Healthcare Facility in Stockton, California. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you'd like to see the full California versus Robert Durst trial, check the show notes for the link. And to keep up with the biggest current legal stories, be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 Eastern. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. 
Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.